Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Longest running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine, and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Where are you going in Kent to collect rally tyres? Uh, Moni, uh, not this afternoon. She's catching up on the uh, on the podcast. Dave England, if my plane lands on time, I'll have at least the first hour today uh, listening live for a change. Uh, which airline, you ask? BA. Ah, not expecting in on time then. Uh, okay. Uh, no FAs tonight for Brodie backing, uh, backing the pack up with overheating issues. <laughs> or shall I just finish a lap early? Very good. T-stories in one there. Kevin Payne is joining us live. Uh, it won't be from the gym, which is where Nick Holland is tonight. New habit forming. forming. Any words of encouragement? Well, Nick Damon's got a gym in his garage now. Uh, as well as a Triumph TR4A IRS. Luke Edwards has got apologies for absence tonight. He's going to 
be qualifying for this weekend's The Real Tourer Suzuka Tenno race. Excellent stuff. Uh, Wednesday already, just walking the dog, then all A's, no AFA. Can somebody explain the difference between Raikkonen in Russia and Vettel in Japan regarding jump starts? Uh, well, I think that's a... I think that's an RC Racing Nick Damon kind of thing. Uh, Podstone at uh, Podstone Podcast at work. It's, see, I conflated two things there. This is Rob Jenner, who is now working at the Silverstone Experience, and I'll be coming to see you soon, Rob, for a little bit of a special preview. Now everything's where it is. Another special preview. Yes. Well, now that it's all there, I can see even more of it. One day they'll let the public in. Yep. Podstone at Silvercast Experience. Um, work that out yourself, Alexander Orkin. Uh, no AFA is feeling mellow after an early supper of rack of lamb and a lovely bottle of Russian River Chardonnay. Oh, Chardonnay with lamb? Not sure. I would have preferred a uh, nice sheen on, maybe a Cote de Rhone. But okay, you know, I can go with it. Uh, Carol Brink is over in the US on the left-hand coast. Uh, and Kevin Home as well, smelling vaguely a vintage steam engine. Oh, he saw the big boy today, didn't he? The, uh, yes, he did. The Union Pacific Big Boy. The last one of the eight that's still running, having just been uh, put back on track. I think it was in May this year, actually. Uh, hello to Adam J, who I saw at the weekend. Uh, and great to see him at Patila Mom. Uh, the crotch belt is still hungover, but not missing this one. And looking forward to what Doonan's doing. Ooh, hashtag Doonan's doing. That, that could be... The new hashtag. Uh, no way I'm missing tonight. Also says uh, Oliver Giles. Olivier Gilles. Uh, especially the big interview with the IMSA president. Uh, listening to Midweek Motorsport. World Food Day. Curious on the dinner menu, says Right Turn Lover. Well, I've given you hours. Tim, what did you have tonight? I had a flat iron steak with some uh, purple sprouting and wilted spinach. What? Um, okay. Andrew Mathers in as well, right turn lover we've mentioned. David Two Brews, first glass of wine charged and ready. Chris Smith listening in. Uh, where has the motorsport season gone? It only feels like yesterday was at the Rolex. We've got nine races still to go, events still to go this weekend. Uh, this weekend, this year, Chris. Shane is racing Le Mans, Lemons race, so is uh, needing to catch up on everything. Uh, and Stuart Mack is listening live. Uh, from a hot and sunny South Africa, Andrew Muggeridge, no AFA, slightly depressed that the IMSA season is over, looking forward to the row, just on 100 days mate, we'll be back there, and uh, Mike is tuned in, he says, I want to hear Specutainment narrate, narrate a nature film like David Attenborough, but way more exciting, here on the veldt of South London, is Tim Gray. He'll be shuffling his papers in the way. Well, not before I've told you that uh, I was correct in saying it was 1996 when Jason Plato won the Renault Spider Trophy. Bryce Wilson was the 97 champion oh. and Dan Eves in 98. Bryce Wilson, good call. Excellent stuff. Uh, shall we shuffle play papers and play the jingles? I can now be more excited, David Nambra. Shall we shuffle the papers and play the jingle? Latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. And we're going to start today 
I've just faded the wrong one. Uh, we're going to start today <laughs> with uh, bike news. For which we need our uh, world bike thing, two-wheel correspondent, uh, Nick Damon. Hello, Nick. Hello, John. And it's a small world, isn't it? It is a small world. Because on Monday, that massive um, train that you were talking about... The, the Indian Pacific Big Boy, 491 or something like that? Rolled past where I was staying. Nowhere! Uh, California. Yep, Beaumont, California. Went through Beaumont, California um, on the Monday morning after we finished the race. So, yeah. There you are. Wow. Amazing. Train on train tracks. I'll be honest with you, I actually didn't understand, I realise the significance of it until I saw somebody else's tweet. It was just another really, really annoying loud train. Well, actually, that one wasn't. The others have been really no, it's annoying a, it's, loud trains. It's, it's, hang on, it's a four-boiler steam. Four steam train. It's the biggest steam I'm, locomotive in the world. It's the 4014. Yeah, Sorry, that, I had to look that up there. Yeah, I was, I, I was a little bit annoyed with the diesel trains, which have been keeping me awake most nights. Why you need to blow your whistle at three in the morning? Ah, uh, well, well, you know, you have to. It's a four eight eight four. That's how big it is. I got, I got, I got a best count though. One went past 127 carriages, which beat my record um, from I think Texas a couple. No, where were the in outburst? Where was that? Uh, yeah, right, right, yeah, right, it might have been Texas. Yeah, which, which is 115. So it's my best. Uh, this is how I spend my time counting the trucks. <laughs> you need, you need to get out more. Really. I was out at the time. Okay. <laughs> Uh, even more. You need to be doing it's, something else. It's, it's what I do when I finish doing the interview and Matt is doing all the all the GVs and the cutaways. And I'm sitting there going, well, I've got nothing to do. Oh, there's a train. I'll yeah. count the train tracks. Exactly, yeah. Midweek Motorsport goes train spotting, says Stuart Mack. Absolutely. Don't take long. Don't take long. To, to be honest, that's a whole Tell other, that's a whole what, other if he, if he does, thing. If he, does, if he does a packed lunch, I'll go, I'll go train spotting. Well, we, we still need to go to the tram museum. Johnny Palmer is our train spotting expert, of course. Well, he's, he's, he likes trams as well. We, know, we need to go to Crouch and go to the National Tram Museum. That's a whole day out. We need to do that as an inside story because I really want to go behind the scenes there. Anyway, shall we move on to two <laughs> you wheels? You go there without making a podcast. No, 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 we can't. Because You know why we can't? Because the listeners would be disappointed. They if, can go there themselves. If we me, live in America. Can you imagine if me, Johnny and Nick went to Kreitsch, to the National Tram uh, Museum, and we didn't make a podcast about it. It has, it has the ghost tram, the old Sunderland Borough ghost tram there, the old 97. It has some... Fa- Sorry, let's... Shall uh, I can imagine it's getting quite... Um, Nerdy? No, well, me. That's not the word I was going to say, but yes, that's also applied. <laughs> Sticky. Mm. Okay, well, if, if you must. Uh, so... Uh, Nick Damon, two-wheeled action. Where do you want to go first with this team? Uh, El Villicum. Yes, sounds like sounds like a uh, some sort of uh, bacteria. I have El Villicum for my for my for my psoriasis. No, no, no. Apparently, it's it's the active ingredient in that new yogurt that, to keep you to to keep your cholesterol <laughs> Cath- down, isn't Cath- it? Cathedus El Villicum. Yeah, good. Yeah, ex- um, yes. So, uh, interestingly, um, the, the moral of the story, uh, regardless of which side you take, is it's really not a very good idea to resurface a track a week before a major sporting, major, major sporting event. It's such a lovely surface, though. It's just not ready well, to yes. be raced on yet. No. Well, it was dusty offline and oily online, so it really wasn't that good. No, it was oily everywhere, but of course the dust had stuck to the bits which weren't online. <laughs> 
Um, is uh, sorry, I, I'm. Well, I may be getting a cure me... for bits. It'll be a brilliant surface. Uh, um, I I may be getting my Argentinian circuits mixed up. But is this the same place that we had the problem with the surface break up uh, when we had world touring cars there ages ago? And no. It, and it was like a, it was like a gravel rally stage. No. Okay. This is the one that had some issues with its surface last year, which is why they resurfaced it for this year. Okay. A bit late. Well, well, given that the track only got its homologation for a Friday practice session, actually it might have even been a Thursday practice session, but they, they only got their homologation on Wednesday evening. Mm. Nothing wrong with that. That's quite normal. Because they have to count marshals and spectator fences and things like that. Yes. However, yeah, anyway. the question yes. of the track wasn't necessarily the headline, Nick, was it? Because what it was, was the rider power that all of a sudden went a bit flat. Well, I think the thing to, to explain is that were, there were three issues with the track. There was the seepage of the oil, there was the dust off line, but the third issue was it was all made a lot worse when the temperature came up. Because yes. obviously, as you can imagine... Um, tarmac itself kind of moves around and it's a living thing as, as you know certainly when it's new and the the temperature was drawing even more gunk out of it um, and effectively the, the riders felt it wasn't very safe to begin with they then felt with the extra temperature be even less safe and a rider boycott was either arranged or discussed or dismissed depending on who you believe mm. um in the end, of the 18 riders who turned up, six didn't take part in the first feature race on the Saturday. That led to massive recriminations, um, uh, specifically between uh, Eugene Laverty uh, faced towards Jonathan Ray, who he says initially said he had um, he was going to boycott the race, and then under pressure he said he wasn't going to. Jonathan Ray today has come out and said that's complete balderdash. He was never going to boycott the race and disagree completely with the ball. So that's, you know, he said, that's totally he said, she said, um, or he said, he said, I suppose, really. Uh, and then, of course, the following day, they all ran both the races and, you know, Ray won both of them, Bautista won on Saturday, and everyone continued on. I think I think the it's, it's unfortunate, I think, that we've now had this spat between the two British drivers. Uh, riders, riders, sorry. Um, Chas Davis was involved in it as well, massively. Yeah, Chas, bought, Chas he, Davis he was very, very outspoken on the, the British TV coverage, at least. And, and during the Saturday race... I actually thought he sounded really sensible. He wasn't shouting the odds. Uh, there'd been, and, and I thought this was interesting, there had been a compromise put forward that they should race the two feature races on Sunday when the forecast was for it to be 10 degrees cooler. And it was. And, you know, go back to the old school, not by having the... Uh, Super Pole race, and there had been an um, an accident, and Baz wasn't it had gone down and broke his wrist. Loris Baz on the Yamaha um, yeah. had had a nasty, nasty off uh, and broken his wrist. I mean, we saw in another series at another track in other conditions, we saw people walk away from around Silverstone, and it seemed like this was dealt with by the authorities in the series very differently indeed. 
Yeah, I, I just different think series, be, of course. Yeah, well, I just, I just feel the problem with this is that, that, that what's happened now is the media is all about the argument, and and it's not about the fact that patently the track shouldn't have been homologated for the simple reason you can't homologate a track where you've had large swathes of it resurface. Yeah, it's fine if one breaking point or one corner needs to be done right at the last minute. That's not an yeah, issue. Yeah, but yeah, then yeah. two thirds of the circuit has been resurfaced a week beforehand we know what that means that's never going to be safe because you don't you don't want you know, you know what you can do so that's that's what the competition should be the competition should be why did dorna um and the fim allow the circuit to be homologated and obviously the answer was of course money and the fact that everyone was already there and all and television but it was never about you know rider safety then of course you, got, you do come to the point where should the riders all have boycotted it and that's a very emotive thing i think i think it's even more emotive in motorcycling because of the, the, the much higher level of the gladiatorial image of the riders than perhaps yes. drivers have. You know, it's all about, they are literally putting their lives on the line. So they, they put, they're putting their bodies on the line every single time they go out, every single time they go out. You know, the, the difference between a motorcycle accident and a, you know, the car accidents is, is only one out of 10 car accidents hurt, whereas nine out of 10 motorcycle accidents will hurt, you know, even with the airbags. Through. 11 out of 10 motorcycle accidents hurt. It's just <laughs> well, a question of how, yeah, much. how much. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, and, and that's the difference. And I, and, and I think, unfortunately, now it's got spun into machismo and everything else. But what, what, what should be taken from this is it should never have gone ahead, regardless mm. of anything, just because it's... And, and the questions have to be asked, why was the track resurfacing the week to go? Again, that's going to be either down to inefficiency or down to money. Um, if yeah. it ha- I mean, it's been known about the issues about the... Since last year. The, the track since last year. And that is... You're absolutely right, Nick. There is only one question is, why did it take so long to have it done? If it was going to be done and it had to be done... And they'd been, to, from my understanding, they'd been told to have the race. It had to be resurfaced. And yeah. therefore, I think your your question is actually very important. Did they think, oh, if we just hang out, they'll not bother? And then, you know, with well, two that, or three I, weeks I to go, uh, then... You know, I hadn't thought that that might be the case that they thought we can get away with it, and, and then perhaps see. That's a really good point, John, because that's actually what might have happened. Yes, well, that, that, I, I'm, I'm, no, I was being serious, not not facetious, no, I, for I, once. I <laughs> Which is quite right because three or four weeks beforehand, I assume someone from the FIA would have turned up for a pre for a pre race inspection. But hang on, you've not resurfaced this. And they went, "Oh, were you serious?" Yes. yes. Oh, we'll, we'll get the team to do it tomorrow then, and turn it be a week before. But that, I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't actually put down the fact they were trying to get away with it. But that actually now makes a lot more sense. Allow me to interject here. The uh, FIM's circuit inspection was in June. Really. At a time of year where resurfacing anything. In Argentina, it was probably a bad idea because it's very, very cold. Well, not very, very cold. Just yes, colder very, than it would very have been. Cold. Oh, what? How cold? Like December in here, in this country. Uh, right. Okay. So you don't want to. You really don't want to be doing no. any resurfacing then. So the really, they should why have done it. In the UK, roads are resurfaced in uh, now. No, they'll have finished by now. I oh, know they're still doing it in uh, Northamptonshire. Oh, there's loads going they're late. <laughs> Well, that's because they've got no money. They've had to borrow money from somewhere else. Um, but, yeah, I, yeah, okay. So, really, what they should have done was resurfaced it straight after last year's event when they said it has to be resurfaced. Yes. Okay. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so, Bautista, Bautista won the first race. Johnny Ray, run the, who won the Super Bowl? Because I only watched the highlights. Did Ray win that as well? Yeah. 
All right, so we didn't get three different winners on the weekend. Okay, fine. We just got the same two. Bautista was outstanding in the first race, by the way, in awful conditions. He literally outrode the whole grid, or all 12 of them, by the way. So, frankly, if you and me on our road bikes had been on the back of the grid and managed to stay, we'd have got a world championship point. Yes, exactly. My, I was watching that thinking, oh, my God, I could have had a world championship point if I'd been there on the BMW Gear well, 1600 yeah, GT. Well, the problem is, would you, done that, would you have done enough laps to be classified is uh, the question. That's true. Well, the, the lap times were so far down, but, uh, but Bautista was absolutely outstanding. And you look at Bautista there and look at his bike control and look at his commitment. And to be honest, Johnny Ray, and I, you don't, you can't blame him for this, he dropped back towards top rack and then sort of picked it up again with three or four laps to go. But he wasn't really up for it. You could see he wasn't really up for it, whatever he, he says. To, he? He no, doesn't he, just, he doesn't need to. Um, and, you know, whatever he says about whether there was pressure or not put on him, whether he's going to race. But Bautista, you look at Bautista there and think, ah, yes, there's the world champion. Because he's just, he's out. Oh, no, hang on. He completely messed it up in the middle of the year, didn't he? And, and mm-hmm. I had to keep reminding myself that whilst I was watching the first race. He literally looked like he was in a different class when it was difficult. The the Ducati is so fast in a straight line. It's extraordinary. And you think... Well, I, I very, I very much doubt, up? John, that any, I very much doubt that anybody has ever uh, lost any world championship after winning the first 11 races on the spin. Art speculation, if you're no different. Uh, sh- Johnny shall we Ray move on? said, oh, yeah, go on. Uh, everyone has their point of view, whether they've got something to gain or not. I disagree completely with marching onto the pit lane in civvies like some kind of army saying we're going to show them. That's not the right thing to do. We have to try. This is a country that's really struggling. People have paid to come and see us. Mm-hmm. At least let's go to the grid. Uh, they don't like that my opinion was different to theirs. I'm not going to get peer pressured into something that I don't want to do. We're racing for a manufacturer's title as well. And while I felt the conditions were not ideal, they were raceable. We got a good race. We did 21 laps. And all those who started finished. Well, that is true. That is true. It looked tricky, but you have to... It's not supposed to be easy. These are the pinnacle of sportsmen. Yeah, I, yes, but, but we're not supposed to put people at risk. Like, like it's like doing driving around 130R with one hand on the wheel. Shouldn't yeah, be, it shouldn't be easy. That's the key point about this whole thing. The problem when you've got weepers be they be they liquid weepers in nascar or they be oil weepers in um in in, the, in a tarmac situation you have an inconsistent circuit and you could go around perfectly lap one and then lap two you're going around perfectly again but something's come up and you fall off mm. that's the thing it's it's not about that it's not about how easy or hard many, it is. many years ago when alan mcnish and i were having this discussion quite spiritedly about uh, me saying um Nobody is forcing you to go out when it's wet. Uh, you've got wet tyres. Go out and drive or don't go out and drive. And nobody's going to think any of the worse of you for it. And he said, ultimately, you have to save people from themselves. Because drivers, riders, contracted, they have commitments to people other than themselves. And ultimately, at that point, you have to save them from themselves. And if you can honestly say that it is inconsistent and or dangerous. And we were talking about standing water, so basically getting the plank of a GT yeah. car or a particularly a prototype car or a formula car to the point where you're driving a very, very fast boogie board. Um, and you know what? That changed my view forever on that situation. 
and uh, and I, I thought that was a reasonable point. Someone who's got to take responsibility and and say you've got to save people from themselves. At the weekend, it was the riders' choice. They didn't ride on the Saturday. I won't criticise anybody for riding or not riding. Sunday, everybody rode. We got a different race. Um, and Johnny Ray still won. <laughs> Just every second, though. Uh, top rack with a couple of Podia at the weekend, which I think has confirmed him no worse than fifth position and with a chance of fourth position in the championship because uh, and maybe even third because Alex Laws uh, and Michael van der Mark are only six and five points ahead of the Turkish rider. And Alex Laws has been confirmed as Johnny's teammate next year. Yes, correct. Has uh, gone to Kawasaki, yeah, absolutely. Shall we move on? Uh, yes, let's move on to... Uh, from sports cars, oh. uh, because the GT Cup Open Championship had its finale at Monza at the weekend. Excellent. And Hans-Peter Koller was literally on fire as he won the title. He went across the line. Actually, he went across he the line s- in the pit lane with the car ablaze. Yes. Extraordinary stuff. Second, I, I, I can't decide, Nick. Is it is it more worthy... Winning a title going across the line in the pit lane completely ablaze or winning the race in Macau crossing the line on your roof as Lawrence Vanto uh, did for Audi. I, that's a tough well, I call. No, I, no, no, I think ablaze. Uh, <laughs> if he'd been thing, upside what, down and no, on I fire, I think well, he takes it. If you're upside down, yeah, you've got a lovely roll cage. You know when you come to a halt, there's no issue getting you out. If you're on fire, the fire's getting worse and you've got to get out and get across the line. He came to the pit lane, literally, if, if you have not seen the pictures or the video, it is the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. And he got the points, enough points to win the championship. So you could say he wins the championship, my, he's on fire. And for once, you would not have to say metaphorically there <laughs> as most commentators don't his uh, uh, championship rival only uh, or only needed to finish ahead of him mm. uh, but uh, also got a puncture right on the last lap it was this was all at the end of the race actually that's a good point uh, more sports car news later on we'll have Shea Adam we've got the IMSA incoming president John Dooning answering your questions uh, from the hashtag ask Doonan where to next Tim uh, Formula One. Hang on. Hey, he wasn't that loud to start with. Rain. No, I grabbed him early. If you, if you see, if you see what I mean. Uh, we, oh, where were we at the weekend? We were at Suzuka. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know what? First question and serious question. Qualifying race on the same day? Absolutely. Ridiculous idea, no. If you need to do it like they did it, absolutely fine. But no, not forever. All right, here's another thing then. Qualify the first session you get the cars out of the truck and then do your practice and then race. No. That's it. There is no, nothing really. wrong with qualifying. It is the one thing about F1 that's not broken. The qualifying okay. format, when it is, is actually both sporting and televisually as nigh on perfect as you can get. Can I ask some questions here? Fire. What nationality is Fernando Alonso? Spanish. Spanish. What nationality is Giancarlo Fisichella? Italian. Italian. Well, according to Ferrari, they must both be German. Why? Uh, 
uh, because Ferrari tweeted that uh, every time uh, qualifying is held on a Sunday morning, uh, pole goes to a German driver. Uh, they were talking about Michael Schumacher, weren't they? But they had completely forgotten about uh, about Alonso and Fizzy. When did Fizzy get it? It's only happened, I think, five, five times. Three of which three of were at Suzuka. Hmm. I only watched... I, I had to remember very late to put the, the replay on uh, so I could watch it when I got back after I Petit Le Mans. live in America uh, at 10 past 10 local time in the evening on Saturday in California. Um, got the full service and there's no breaks on the ESPN. No, it's it's great. Good, you, just it? get the, you get the Sky service all the way through. So I actually saw it just like I was at home. Well, I would just have. Like I was home. I was, I, was, I, was, I was shouting at various um, things that were happening. Inconsistencies, yes. I, I walked into my hotel room in Bethlehem and took off my haversack. A little town. For, exactly. Uh, I was on a donkey. And uh, I, as I took off my haversack, I realised I'd left the master hard drive plugged into the computer in the track. So I had to turn around and go back, which meant I only saw the last 13 laps live, so I had to catch up with it at home because there's no radio well, coverage I'll, in the States. I'll, just, I'll, I'll pre-see the whole thing for you. Right, uh, it's I'll, quite easy. Right, start at the it, beginning. So why why, do, why does Vettel not get a jump start penalty? Well, let me start. I'll start at the beginning, and and the and the title of this race should be, how on earth have they managed to throw another race away? This is getting silly, um, because they locked out the front row in Ferrari, and um, there was a jump start, or, or well, I don't know if it was a jump start, really, a, a stutter by Vettel, which um, he then put the brakes on, and then for he loused his start up, which and then. Round the bottom of the first corner, uh, in a desperate effort not to be overtaken, uh, new tough guy uh, Charles Clerk at his eye um, understeered into Verstappen and knocked him off, uh, and therefore put himself at the back of the back of the back of the field. Um, taking the um, Fettel one, and I I also a little bit struggle with the what was different about um, Kimi Räikkönen apart from the fact that Sebastian Fettel was driving a Ferrari. Um, from one angle, he doesn't quite go over the red line. That red line is actually where the timing beam, effect, the sensor is. So he kind of spluttered and stopped. It's not actually anything about gaining advantage. It's about gaining advantage or not. It's whether you actually trigger that or not. So obviously he didn't trigger it or trigger it in a way which was within within tolerances for the start. I you know I think it's 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 unfortunate for them that the people will go hang on you did you did. Um, uh, Raikkonen two races ago, and you didn't do or was about a race ago. Uh, but you know, it's, 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 there's been a number of slightly dodgy decisions recently, I think, which um, in this let them have it, let's let everyone race phase, which luckily haven't actually affected the um, uh, the race itself, it hasn't affected the the overall world championship. But um, yeah, it's it's a bit it, it, they're, they're inconsistencies, and it's kind of a bit unpleasant. I don't really like them, to be honest. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. And, and in fairness, there was no advantage games, was there? There was no advantage games for me. Well, yeah. Um, I think the yeah, evidence I mean, it, that... it is one of those things where it's very. It, 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 yeah, he, he didn't end up the lead at the end of the day. Ferrari aren't going to win any world championships now. We know that because it's been secured by um, Mercedes, both world championships. We don't, say, we don't know who drives the championship yet. Ferrari, you know, also, the, 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 to be honest, the, the biggest faux pas of all 
in the race, and there's a lot to talk about the race, but the biggest thing that happened, which shouldn't be alive, live, allowed, sorry, um, is that, and they did do it after the race, is that Leclerc should not have been allowed to drive with his wing fall to pieces. And that, you know, even the bits fell off and hit Lewis in the face. Um, so you kind of sit around and go, well, that's just not happening. That is, that is, that is very dangerous. Luckily, at the end of the race, they both gave Leclerc a 10-second penalty. They also gave um, uh, a, a, a big fine to Ferrari as well. And that, was, I thought, was, was actually a good piece of stewarding because it was just ridiculously dangerous. Oh, I think I'll carry on going. Yeah, it's fine. I'm fine. You know, your bits are falling off your car. They're hitting the man behind you. You know, this is just the, the, the ridiculous danger. We've seen people severely hurt. And uh, yes. Uh, uh, you know, you... Uh, that, to me, to me that, was, that was silly. That was black flag. That was black flag. Black and because, orange flag, to start no, black with. Flag. No, just black flag, because you've driven with an unsafe vehicle. The bits have knocked off Lewis's wing mirror mm. and could have hit him in the head. You know, it's like, come on. Have we not learned anything? You know, oh, I think I can carry on going with it. Yeah, possibly you can, but your car's falling to pieces. I what Philippe Massa must have thought of that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not the same weight as a spring, but it's still going backwards at, what, there's 100, you're going to hit it at 170 miles an hour down the main straight. Even things that don't weigh very much mm. are turning to projectiles at 170 miles an hour. So I, was, I thought that was very bad. Luckily, retrospectively, it was dealt with. I suppose that that's what the mark... The, well, the, the other thing is, Nick, it's, it's the amount of carbon fibre shards that are on the track. I mean, I, this is the point. This is this is where a team has to take over, and because the racers, again, going back to our thing, you have to say them for themselves. You're absolutely right, John. And the team has to go. No, you're in now. And I'm very glad that Fry got a big fine. I mean, it's not a big fine for them, twenty-five thousand dollars, but it does make a point. Um, that, Should yeah, have had yeah. a points deduction, I think. Well, I, I, it, well, it was, actually, was, no, I, no, they shouldn't have had a points deduction because, unfortunately, the stewards didn't react quick enough. And it, it is down to the stewards. Somebody should have had a black and orange flag or a black flag out for that. And then right. Ferrari wouldn't have had the choice. Well, the problem is, what's happened is, is that stewards now are investigating everything that breathes. They had three other things already backed up, didn't they? They had, they had the first corner incident with what happened in Leclerc. They had another incident, yes. I think, maybe, I may have the time, I was like, Robbie Norris and Albon. They had the incident with the jump start. I mean, the jump start was interesting, really, because they didn't actually say yes or no until... I don't know, 17, 19 laps in, by which case the drive-through would be significantly less serious than it would have been earlier on in the race because yeah. without the field spread. And you see, again, this, you know, jump, like speeding in the pit lane and jump starts to me are pretty black and white and easy to sort out. You know, you look at the data, off you go. It's not a problem. But I mean, again, it's, it's, I think what's happened is that, interestingly, the change in the concept of the stewarding with the let, let them at it a bit more boys has had the reverse effect. What they were hoping to do was kind of reduce the amount of controversy, but they just massively ramped it all up. Mm. So, you know, and I think, I think as they are now doing this, we do really need permanent stewards. I think if you're going to do it, it's absolutely fine. Let's find, that's fine. We're going to have Matt boys. That's not an issue, but you have to have, the same four people, and perhaps get a fifth steward who is who is the local guy from the MSA or whatever equivalent in the rest countries. Have have one floating steward who I suppose might end up with a casting vote in a five-man team. But the other four should be permanent, so you have consistency. And that's really realistically, if you look at what teams and drivers want, they're not that bothered about the decisions as long as they're always consistent. Well, you've got to be able for people to go back and say, "Oh yeah, do you remember when we were at?" 
such yeah. and such a race. This is what we did then. That looks pretty similar to that. I think we've got to go the same way. And the problem is that that isn't happening. And it's really difficult. And if it was me on commentary, that's what I'd be saying. It's really difficult to justify some of these decisions. They're being made on an individual basis. I understand that. And you will always get the argument in motorsport, and I also understand this, that every single incident is different. That's true. But they, we've seen they, some... They, they form a pattern, don't they, John? There's a pattern. They do form... They for, um, uh, they do form a pattern. And also, we've seen some slam-dunk uh, dangerous releases uh, in the pit lane that haven't been called for whatever reason. Um, uh, yeah. Do we need more stewards? Do we need more stewards? So you've got a team that are going, right, we're looking at this. You keep looking at what's going on. I don't know what the answer is. But this is the pinnacle of our sport. And when other series, lesser series, people would say, can turn down turn around their um, their decisions quicker. I heard Martin Haven uh, on the uh, Fuji race um, talking about something that took two hours and ten minutes uh, for a pit lane blend line um, issue to be rectified. Now, I accept that there's other things that are happening at the same time, but a pit lane blend line is fairly black and white. So, surely, you should be able to prioritise that to the top and go, either yes, that is, we've been asked to look at it, and yes, his wheel's over it, or no, his wheel isn't. Move on. Let's go back to this one that's a little bit more subjective. And, you know... And and let's be honest with John. Formula One has more than enough money to pay four very experienced people to go around the world on the circuit. And I'm sure there's plenty of people who would like to be a permanent student in F1, um, regardless of anything else. Yeah, and... You just need the same people. with if, if, if the people looking have got the same perspective every week, then you're going to get consistent decisions. It doesn't really matter whether they decide you have to be three quarters of the way alongside or half alongside or whatever it may be, because it's the same decision each time. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Uh, other than that, uh, decent run at the front of the field by Bottas. I don't go yeah, with I mean, people think, saying think... it was payback. I think he actually drove very well. Um, I, think, I think Mercedes did make a mistake they they suffer from severe arrogance if they if they genuinely thought that lewis was going to overtake fettle then they haven't been watching the last three races <laughs> um so i do believe that they got lewis out of the way they actually sacrificed the points to get lewis out of the way um because they knew otherwise they had the two cars would have to overtake each other on the track and they didn't want to have to really, they didn't want to have to actually should they have put the harder tire on lewis that's what he was asking for apparently they hadn't run the thing all weekend so no one knew what it was going to do and I personally think that if Lewis had stayed out on a one-stop strategy, he would easily have finished ahead of, of Vettel. And it, but it would have been a headache for for Mercedes. Mercedes knew they were going to win. The, the, you know, at that point, they knew they were going to win the uh, constructors' championship. Because even if he hadn't got the fastest lap, um, they would have done it on uh, on count back of wins. So yes. it's it, you sit there going. That, that was tactical. They know who's, we, we all know, who, you know, barring the world's most ridiculous run of breakdowns, we know who's going to be world champion, just whether he wins it in um, uh, Mexico or where I'm sure he much rather prefer to win it, which is the US. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, and, and they drove very well. And Lewis, you know, Lewis drove in the race very well, strategy wise. It's a learning experience. 
that Valtteri had a great a great weekend. This from Carol Brink on Adspec Entertainment, which is where you get in touch with us here on Midweek Motorsport. We're live, by the way, at uh, 19 minutes in the UK before nine o'clock in the evening. Uh, when will they start taking constructor points away for these things? If that is the most most important, hit them where it hurts. And that Nick, of course, is the most important because it costs them money. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think it's 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 really you know there the needs to be a little bit more the punishments need to be worked out a bit better but it's it's the one thing you need is consistency and you also need to recognize things are serious and you see things which you know vettel's you know road rage incident was treated the same as somebody jumping the start at one point and that's yeah, not wrong. the same wrong. you know but that's, I'm, I'm going back two years of that one, but it's a, it's a. I know, yeah, but I that that, that yeah. is a good example, and I know it's one that really you were on your high horse about. We all have certain things <laughs> that just you know that really affect us, and that was the one. And I don't disagree with you at all. You're listening to Midweek Motorsport. Uh, it is, uh, as I said, just before quarter to nine uh, this evening. Uh, we're on series 14. Can you believe we're on episode number 39? Uh, at the moment, uh, next week, by the way, uh, our, be episode forty. It will be forty, and uh, I went up to see Nick Tandy today uh, up at JTR, which is in uh, on the the border of uh, Northamptonshire and Bedfordshire. So our big interview next week. It's already done. It's a pre-record, but it's worth listening at the workshop. Nick Tandy is our big interview uh, next week, uh, and if you don't believe. That we are um, live at the moment. Uh, it's nil five, nil two, and six nil. Well, the, the nil, the nil five the has uh, finished. That's a full time. Oh, that score. is actually all of those scores were full time. But it yes. is half time uh, and nil nil in uh, the match that's going on between uh, Central Cordoba and Estudiantes de las Palmas. You just wanted to say that, didn't you? <laughs> you really just wanted uh, to say that. Before we leave Formula One. Uh, Tim, we've got another developing story. Talked about it at one Porsche, uh, one Porsche OPT, one Porsche Drive jingle. last week. Oh, 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 yes, yes. You did. Nice. Jay Adams, our Miami correspondent. That's my anthem, Tim. Yes. <laughs> my favourite part of that is hundred thousand dollar cars. Everybody got them. Uh, uh, which is, uh, sorry, pool so clear, you can see it at the bottom, $100,000 cards, everybody got them. Fabulous yeah, life and on that. That's the most reasonable price to pay for a car now in Miami. <laughs> Formula, <laughs> one. Song. Formula One has finalised an agreement in principle with Hard Rock Stadium to bring annual Formula One racing to South Florida beginning in May 2021. Okay, so I've been doing a lot of digging on this today. Um, and pretty much to all the people out there who are saying, it's a done deal, Formula One coming to Miami, it's going to happen. No, it's not. Uh, Formula One and the Hard Rock Stadium have agreed that Formula One are coming to Miami, but it still hasn't passed the board. It hasn't been approved by the county. There's a large group protesting this organization, and it's pretty not done deal as of right now. There's a lot of people pushing for this not to happen so for everybody who's thinking about buying their plane tickets and buying their tickets to come down and see this race, don't get your hopes up yet. What about the people who are going to book 35,000 hotel rooms? Yeah, yeah, which um, was shocking because they're saying, oh, well, May, it's a slow season. Really? Because the traffic still seems pretty bad in May. 
And those 35,000 hotel rooms, that's the other funny part of this, Tim, because the Formula One drivers, they're probably not going to be staying near the stadium in Miami Gardens, a neighborhood, by the way, that has its own police force. And in 2016, the violent crime rate was 64% higher than the national level. So not exactly the kind of neighborhood that you want to bring all these affluent people to. They're going to be staying in downtown Miami, if anything, Brickle, even out on Miami Beach, and then taking their helicopters into the track every day. Also, 35,000 room nights isn't a lot when you consider there's 10 Formula 1 teams, each of whom have 100 staff, and they're all going to be there for a whole (laughs) week. So that's a fifth of your room nights gone already. Uh, Good point, Tim. Well, I I was doing a little bit of research into the stadium and some of the numbers associated with it. A couple of years ago, there was $550 million put toward the stadium in renovation. $75 million of that came from Stephen Ross, who's the owner of the stadium in the Miami Dolphins. There was a $200 million loan from the NFL, and the rest was coming from the taxpayers of Miami-Dade County. They also agreed to pay $5 million a year to Stephen Ross for bringing money to the area, up to $75 million. So he's still getting $5 million a dollar. $5 million a year. That's not a loan. That's just money going into his pocket. Then back in 2016, we had Hard Rock come and buy the main naming rights for the stadium. They paid $250 million for an 18-year agreement. This is year three of that, that agreement. In the meantime, Stephen Ross has also promised to build a $125 million training center for the Dolphins, and he bought the Miami Open, which cost $70 million. So we've got all of that going. And then when you consider the estimated cost of the track, which is $40 million, that's a lot of money. (laughs) Uh, Nick Damon, you're quite good at predicting whether Grand Prix (laughs) are going to go ahead in America. Uh, (laughs) Is this one worth a a Rolex? Um, It's worth giving me a Rolex for. Um, (laughs) I think that, that... Um, Liberty got so obsessed with getting something happening in Miami. I've no idea why. It could be, as you say, because they're massive fans of Gloria Estefan, the Miami Sound Machine, um, as that's more their age group. Um, I don't know. It, you know the history of, of American car park races in F1 is not a glittering one. Um, so I'm not quite sure why they want to do another one. And it seems like a collection of vanity projects of vanity people. And my guess is it'll fall foul and not happen. Yeah. Okay, Shay, we'll be hearing more from you in the second hour of the programme. Nick Damon, we won't be, so we say goodbye to you now. Goodbye, Tim. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, Shay. (laughs) Bye. Let's welcome the latest race winner in the Michelin Pilot Challenge, final round of the season uh, last weekend, and delighted to say that on the line, uh, still in America, but on the line, basking in the glory of a glorious victory is Sebastian Prio. Hi, Seb, how are you doing? Hi, how's it going? Thank you for having me once again. It's amazing to be on the show. Thank you. Um, fabulous job at the weekend, sir. Um, you looked, I've got to say, you and Austin Sindrick look absolutely at home. When I, It's the only time of the year that I get out of the, the commentary box to do the grid walk on the last of that series of the year. It's right underneath our commentary booth. It's easy for me to get down, and I do the, the countdown to green. You guys look right at home. You look very cool. Uh, Road Atlanta's not an easy track. It didn't phase you at all. No, I mean, I love that Road Atlanta track. It was my first time there. Um, Austin's 
second time there racing the full Mustang, but he, he, he taught me a lot, showed me a lot, and uh, it perfect worked really well. We did a good job, uh, and you know the car was faultless. Multimatic and full performance did a great job to, to let the, you know to give us an amazing car that lasted. So you know those guys you've been racing with them in the british gt championship uh, how exactly did the drive come about so um it just came up uh sean uh mason my, he's my boss at automatic he uh he said you want to come and do atlanta Petit at the more uh in a couple months time a couple of weeks time sorry and i was like oh that'd be awesome i'd love to do that and uh yeah and i just did a lot of work on, on the simulator did some stuff with the guys and uh yeah i mean it, we just came to the chat like it was just you know i've been there before which is awesome so i loved it and we did a lot comparing before that and it was just great to win so i know the simulators are good nowadays uh but particularly the one that you use um yeah. can it really prepare you for the particularly the topography the way the that the track rises and falls at road atlanta for sure you can you know you'll get which way the track goes but that's two and a half miles 2.54 miles for those who are keeping score of some pretty awesome tarmac isn't it yeah i mean the sim gives you an idea what, what the track's like but when you get there for real i mean there's there's walls you, you know approaching 150 miles an hour you've got to be <laughs> pretty much uh, focused you know what i mean and it's different when you're out on track in real life but the sim gives you preparation and and you've done the work, so there's nothing on the table you've left, you know what I mean? You've sort of done everything you can to learn the track while not, not testing there in real life. But, um, yeah, I mean, it gives you an idea, but you've got to go out there and, and do the job while in real life. You know, it's a lot different when you've got to place the car, you know, right next to the curb. And on the sim, it's easy. You can make a mistake, hit the wall, it's fine. But here, you know, you've got a lot of people watching. You don't want to make any mistakes. Uh, you've had a cracking year, to be fair. Your career is gathering a bit of pace now. It seems like two minutes since I was talking to your dad about you starting in the in the winter, I think it was the winter series, the Geneta winter series. Yeah. That seems like five minutes ago. Uh, and all of a sudden you've established yourself as an international racing driver now. Uh, does it seem like it's been a short time for you as well, Sam? Yeah, I mean, I can't thank my mum and dad and all my sponsors enough for you know getting me on, on the grid and also, the team Multimatic, they've done an awesome job to help me out this year. But it feels just like yesterday I was racing in, in Geneta Juniors and I did British Formula 4 for a year and, and stuff like that. But, you know, it was, it's, it's great to be in a proper championship and uh, enjoy myself out in America, you know, with him. So it's, it's an amazing opportunity to race. It's such an amazing, like, awesome, you know, like race series. So I love it. It's, it's great. Uh, yeah, yeah, rise through the different formula has taken a fairly standard route with uh, a bit of a bit of karting uh, and then moving into cars as we said a couple of years ago three years ago now wasn't it, it was 2016 it was. Um, and you won that winter series uh, in the Gineta, uh, junior championship and i think did, were you run up as well in i that? was i was runner up in the main championship but yeah. that was a pretty weird season because actually i should have won the championship but some sort of discrepancy what happened with the engines was actually found out there was nothing wrong but um i was gonna say was, you, one you got yeah. some points docked that year didn't you yeah i did i, I did I, I you know i never knew really what happened there but we weren't cheating but it was just you know something happened with you know and obviously i was winning quite a lot of races and you know what happens with racing sometimes you know <laughs> but uh you know we did a, a good job that season it's definitely made me stronger after that not winning the championship it made me a lot work on myself a lot more and confidence just to you know deal with that sort of stuff you know and now I'm sort of dealing with other stuff and it's going really well, you know, with not always, you know, having the best result, but working harder to achieve better stuff, which is happening really well at the moment. So 
you mentioned uh, F4 in the British Championship, yep. and you won races there. Uh, and at that point, I have to say, I'd, I'd bumped into your dad. I can't remember where we were. Andy will remember. But we bumped into somewhere, and you said, and he said, you know, you were doing a bit of F4, and you were doing all right. And so I checked the results. I thought, oh, okay, fine. Um, but you, you decided against carrying on in, in single-seaters. Was, was, that a, was that a conscious decision, or was it just the way the cards fell, if you will? Well, a little bit of both, but uh, Larry in Multimatic. Um, Larry Holt, a, a really, the Larry mad Holt, professor. That's it. That's it. <laughs> He's a really good guy. And um, he gave me a great opportunity to drive the Mustang uh, this year in, in British GT. And I, I could not turn it down. It was an amazing offer. And, you know, I think single seats is great to, to really perfect your driving. You know, it's a hard, hard series racing in Formula 4. And just Formula cars are difficult. You've got to be have a good car, good team to win. You know what I mean? It's mm. tough. But... You know, I did a good, had a good season. It was up and down, um, but I learnt a lot again from that season with the ups and downs. And I look, what I learnt last season is what I put into this season, and it's sort of find me out of a like a bit of perfect driver, you know. Now, so it's maybe perfectionist with how to fill the car and the weight transfer in the car. You know, it's really, really in a big car like that, you've got to really be careful with the weight because it's it can yes. flip quite easy, you know. Yes, a, a, a few years ago, if we'd been having this conversation. It would have been unusual to be speaking to a young lad, a lad of your age, still in his teens, who had already made a transition to GT racing. It's not that unusual now. Uh, why do you think that is? I mean, Austin Sindrick, who you were driving with at the weekend, all right, he's doing really well in uh, in the NASCAR series and the Xfinity series. Yeah. But he started, I first saw him when he was, in fact, I think even a bit younger than you. I think he was 15 or 16 okay. at Bathurst when he was racing for Erebus down there. Um, so it, it's not quite as unusual for, for youngsters to come up through karting and, and, and everything else and then jump into GT cars like you did with the, yeah. the Ginetta. What, why, what caught yeah. your eye about GT racing, Seb? Well, obviously my father's been racing a long time in touring car and, and GT racing, but uh, I think it's a lot more realistic route. I mean, I, I love dreaming about Formula 1 and, you know, it's, it's great to aim Formula 1, but it's very hard, you know, as you know, it's hard to get there. You know, you have to have a lot of sponsors, a lot of money. You've got to be good too, but it's all that money, you know, and I mean, you could just have a good life and, you know, top top sports car drivers, they're just as good or better than Formula 1 drivers they can be. And, uh it's good to, you know, race at race in amazing sports cars, amazing tracks, and not earning obviously the same amount of money as Formula One, but having a good a good career and earning good money. So, uh, and when you're driving win. for a manufacturer, and and you know you're with a um, a, a works team effectively with with Multimatic uh, and Ford there, the level of competition the level of application, the level of professionalism, both in and out of the car. It doesn't matter really, does it, whether it's a GT4 car, a GT3, mm. a prototype or a formula car. If you're driving for a team like that and a manufacturer like that, you're, you, you, they've recognised that you're at the very the very height of your powers there. So, I mean, that, that must be, uh, in some ways, put a bit of pressure on you, but also it must be a good feeling for somebody who's uh, so early on in their career. For sure, I've had a, a great start, as, as, um, as you said before, really. It's been great to with Multimatic, they, like I said, they gave me a great chance, but you've got to be at the top of your game in everything, you know, whatever you do, you've got to be, you know, Lewis Hamilton wins a lot, but he, he has, he has to be quick, he has a great car, but he has to be quick too, so, you know, you've got to really work on yourself to be at the top, you know, if you, as my dad said, it's a good quote, as my dad said, if you stand still in motorsport, you go 100 miles an hour backwards, it's really yeah. true, so, you can't rely on your talent all the time, I mean, 
uh, I've learned a lot from that too. I, I need to really work hard on myself because it comes a bit easier for me sometimes. You know, I don't, I work very hard, but you know, and it comes quite easy. I'm quite naturally quick, so I need to work harder to be quicker as well. Yes. So you I know, know what, what you mean. mean. <laughs> I know yeah. exactly what I know exactly. Yeah. It's it's like somebody yeah. like George Best, who's long before your age, but your yeah. dad will remember him most. Paul Gascoigne, um, fantastically talented at football, thought he didn't have to turn up uh, to all the training. It doesn't work like that, does it? It really no, doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Um, now, the problem with motor racing as well, Seb, is um, you know the old adage is you're only as good as your last yeah. race. Well, you won your last race, yeah. but everything resets now. So end of the season. Uh, how's it looking for next year and what plans are you hoping to be able to fulfil? Well, firstly, I mean, yeah, we had a good ending to the season, which is great to end on a high. But as you yes. said, it changes every every day. You can win and then be zero to here in one one test, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I think, I mean, um, my plan is to stay with Multimatic. They're a great, great team and great. What an amazing opportunity they have there. Um, but to stay with Multimatic would be my, my dream. Um, and I'm not sure what we're doing yet next year, but I, I think it, would be good to do some DPI testing or some some testing like that just to keep my speed up in a quick like sort of single seater sort of mm, prototype car, you know. Car, so, yeah, because yeah, I mean, GT4 is great, uh, you know, for for me what I'm doing now. But I've got to do now a step up from there and, and see where you know what's next really. Is and, um, is it you know, possible for you? even at your age to sort of have a five-year plan or something like that it's um, we talk about that in business but motorsport is so volatile it's almost impossible to do that but do you have at least an idea of where you want to go and is that staying in endurance and sports car racing i mean my aim is to win Le Mans outright you know uh, that's what yeah that's what i'd like to do in, in a prototype or any sort of car you know what i mean you know i want to win it outright and uh that's my aim um anything what happens along the way happens but that's my aim is to win them all so uh that that, that's what i said so that's it good for you that's that you that's going to end it to a lot of our listeners i tell you what um now this last question because i'll let you get away in a sec Uh, i know your dad's probably listening there but this has to be honesty here he was there at the weekend is he one of those carton dads and who knows everything and wants to get involved or does he just lay back or is he does he not get involved but you can see he's nervous what because he's done it all as well he's in a rather odd position isn't he he is as he says to me all the time you know uh, my dad's not a hockey dad, that's for sure. But um, he's, uh, you know, he he's there, helps helps me out when I need help. But he's not, you know, he's not like a karting dad. He's not always on my back. I mean, uh, now he's left me alone a lot more now. When I first started out, dad was obviously teaching me a lot more. I had to learn, you know, from my mistakes a little bit. But, and did uh, you listen to him? That's the question. Because a teenage you know, lad, he's not really your job, isn't yeah. any normal teenage lad isn't to listen to his parents. You've got to you've got to go and find things out yourself. Yeah, is I didn't always listen to him, but the actual the main you know I've got a lot of respect for my dad what he's done, and I do listen to the, the main main you. parts, <laughs> not not about the life parts though, but <laughs> the main <laughs> the main parts. <laughs> but uh, no, I listen to him, and um, and also Harry Titnell, I've, I've spoken to a lot as well. Dad's former teammate in in WAC, and he's a great guy, uh, and um, yeah, so he he helps me out, and yeah, so it's just it's good to listen, but then it's good to speak to other people too. Like Austin, he was great, my teammate this week last weekend. He he helped me a lot. He's hard hard-working guy and um, focuses a lot on his racing so he, he's he, good to be with he said to me in that countdown to Graham when I was interviewing the Pervia he's not used to having somebody younger than him as a teammate and him being the senior member of the team that was quite an unusual yeah. situation for him 
It was because he's only 21. He's only a couple of years older than me. I mean, I'm 18, so we're pretty much, you know, not that much different. But he's he was great. It's great to have someone in your sort of age bracket. You know what I mean? It's great because yes. they're sort of got the same mindset. And uh, he, the only thing different is his height. He is a very tall guy, but actually worked out in our favour because I didn't have to loosen my, my, my shoulder belts because I just pushed the seat back and he jumps in. So it's pretty ah, much perfect. Good. I like <laughs> so we that. Learned, we learned something there, but yeah, it was good. Seb, you've had a cracking uh, year in British GT. Well done on that. And a fabulous way to finish it off at a wonderful racetrack and an event with a big crowd there in front of all the big teams. You couldn't possibly have ended the season off any better. A lot of interest in you from our fans as well. Uh, They wanted to, when they knew that you were going to be coming on the show, uh, they want to make a pass on all the best uh, and to, you, to your mum and dad as well to Andy and Joe please pass on my my best and let's uh, hope we bump into you in a paddock sometime soon all the best young man thank you very much and thanks for having me on the show again thank you still to come on midweek motorsport and is there any chance you could bring some dessert to the VO booth please very little uh, I didn't even have some myself uh, Nick's presumably eaten all the dessert though uh, still to come on Midweek Motorsport tonight, uh, we have a big interview with the new man at the head of IMSA, John Doonan. There's a name that sounds very familiar. Uh, we spoke to him earlier in the week and asked him the questions that you asked us to ask him with the hashtag uh, AskDoonan. Uh, Richard Crail will be uh, woken up unceremoniously and uh, asked about V8 Supercars, the Bathurst 1000 took place at the weekend. We'll be talking about that. Uh, we've also got more of your tweets uh, and uh, some other bits of news from single-seaters. We've got Formula E testing, we've got Formula 2 news, we've got some tyre news, uh, and we have some Porsche news. Uh, all that still to come in Hour 2 of tonight's Midweek Motorsports Series 14, Episode 39. Midweek Motorsports on RS1. Our big interview tonight on Midweek Motorsport is the new and newly announced president of IMSA and we welcome along John Doonan. John, first of all, on behalf of myself, from a personal point of view, a professional point of view and all of the listeners and fans, congratulations, sir. Thank you so much, John. Obviously, we've had the opportunity to work together in many ways go uh, over the last many years and I, I could not be happier to officially uh, be partnered with you and the IMSA radio staff you guys do an amazing job and I can't wait uh, to officially start uh, our, our working relationship uh, I guess at the Encore and then uh, certainly to kick off the 2020 season uh, really excited to uh, work together a lot of uh, the the nuts and bolts of this, John, has been covered uh, elsewhere. Um, but it, it's uh, a couple of things I want to talk, if you don't mind, about Mazda and leaving Mazda before we move on to the new job at IMSA. It's my understanding that um, the offer came through quite early in the year and you were quite clear that you wanted to, to continue with Mazda and finish out the season, the the motorsport season with Mazda before taking up any of your and any of your new duties with with IMSA. Yeah, you know, first and foremost, I had to thank um, Masahiro Moro and our executive team at Mazda. They have been so supportive of our overall strategy for many years. So, 
the idea of departing Mazda was a difficult one to swallow. Um, but I did tell Morrison in our first meeting uh, when I shared that this was a possibility um, that there's really only one thing that I would ever consider leaving, you know, Mazda for and this opportunity. Um, you know, had a lot of discussions dating back to March, but wasn't officially uh, presented an offer until everything was, was in proper timeline order. We wanted to respect um, the communication between Mazda and IMSA because obviously we're current partners. We wanted to respect Scott's timeline of, of retirement and making that announcement properly. And one of the things that I wanted and, and Masahiro Moro, our CEO, wanted was to, to have me finish the season, which uh, I want to as well. We uh, had a lot of unfinished coming into 2019. Uh, we had the summer of Mazda, which was incredible. Put three three wins on the board. Never would have dreamed that. And that to, to finish off was was important. So um, it, it's difficult, sweet. But uh, as I said to you know most everybody, it's there's amazing opportunity at IMSA, and I'm really thrilled to be part of it. John, you've always been an emotional guy uh, with the passion, the emotion, uh, the raw emotion. Sometimes is, is part of the reason that we're involved in this, uh, it, it puts into stark relief now the uh, perhaps additional emotion that you had in that summer of Mazda and the, and the triple victories because obviously at that point you knew what was happening. Yeah, I knew what was on the horizon and, you know, I said the other day that Watkins Glen clearly was emotional but there was a huge sense of relief i think validation uh the validation is the word i used for what happened seven days later and i loved uh you know your call of that you know they they hadn't done uh an overall victory in seven years and are they going to do uh two in a week you know that was such a, a great way to frame it up and then road america is an incredible place uh in my family's history to yes. to, to do three in a row there amazing but yes it was uh really emotional in the back of my mind knowing what was coming down the down the pike and uh we, we've been using the hashtag ask doonan uh as we used to do with scott <laughs> ask atherton we said we weren't going to retire that so the new hashtag is ask doonan um dean ackerman and lumberman among a numbers uh, a number of, of our listeners who have who have asked me to ask you and get used to this, by the way, as well, John, uh, because that's the, the sort of access that uh, our listeners want to have with you. Uh, and I'm sure that won't change. Love uh, it. Um, Master Love Motorsport, then. You're leaving Master Motorsport. How secure yeah. it, do you feel Master Motorsport is? And is this, in any way, can anybody see this as a signal of a reduction in what's going on uh, at Master Motorsport? Quite the contrary. Uh, in terms of a reduction, uh, our executive team, as I mentioned a few moments ago, have been insanely supportive of our strategy. We made some adjustments on our investments in open wheel racing about a year ago, and we have a, a strategy that is really refined. We have the grassroots programs, um, which have been great. Uh, Mazda has the MX-5 Cup. Um, now recently announced a TCR customer offering and our DPI project. They are all on stable ground, um, and I leave Mazda with the confidence that 
Motorsport will continue to be a key part of the marketing and communications message, an engineering proof point, and an opportunity for us to celebrate the brand on the track. And when Mazda wins, have all of our fans, our owners, uh, our dealers, and our employees um, happy. And that's that's what it's about. So we're in good shape. Uh, a successor is likely to be named in the coming weeks. Um, and that's going to be uh, great. But the, the current staff, all the guys and gals of, of Mazda Motorsports have been um, so such great teammates. Uh, that's That makes it hard to leave. Uh, sort of bridging the gap between what you've done at Mazda and um, your tenure uh, at, at IMSA, uh, Rick Radice says, can you ask John, please, if he will uh, have a look at making IMSA facilities more accessible for the disabled, as he did with uh, Mazda USA and Mazda Motorsport. That's something that you're quite passionate about, John. We have, uh, certainly, on the Mazda side, uh, with Liam Dwyer and uh, several other drivers, um, obviously thrilled when anybody, regardless uh, of their um, abilities uh, or, or challenges, can participate in this sport just the way that uh, um, all of us do. And I think from the IMSA standpoint, we want to make the content of our events, whether it's on-site or whether it's digitally or whether it's through uh, the broadcasts, available to everyone, everyone as possible, uh, as many people as possible. So if there's uh, astronauts up in a rocket, I'd love to have them be able to watch it. And if there's servicemen and women around the world, I'd like them to be able to watch it. And um, we'd love to uh, certainly have um, folks uh, on site be able to, to have access just as anybody else would. And uh, Liam Dwyer, as you know and mentioned, is a special part of uh, my, my previous life at Mazda. And um, we, I know there's there's keen interest to have him back in a race car. He's been through a lot, um, especially since he's, he's finished up driving a couple of years ago. But I think there's uh, some exciting things on the horizon there. That's good news. That's good news indeed. All right, some quick fire stuff, which I, sus- I suspect will all come under. Okay, guys, please let me get me feet under the desk because you haven't actually started <laughs> until next week. Um, <laughs> however, George, uh, among others, uh, uh, right-turn lover uh, as well, uh, you mentioned particularly in, in some of the interviews uh, you did on announcement of you being that you were going to speak to the OEMs, you were going to speak to the stakeholders. Does that include the privateers and what can be done, for example, for LMP2? I know that there's already some things being put in place, shortening up the LMP2 season, making Daytona optional, but uh, 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 an event on its own at the uh, Rolex 24 at Daytona. Um, do you have any strong thoughts, having been on the other side uh, of that uh, equation as a as an entrant, uh, about what perhaps can be done there? So the, the, the short answer on the front end of this is, you know, do I plan to speak to the privateers? And 100% I do. You know, when IMSA was founded, um, the France family and the Bishop family had a sense that um, everyone should have the ability to go racing, whether it's a OEM or a privateer. And I uh, myself felt uh, in the early stages of our program uh, like we were a privateer simply because we were operating on a, a smaller budget and had that 
um, sort of little team that could um, sort of position. Um, but you speak about OMP2, uh, I consider Brent O'Neill and Bobby Orgel dear friends, um, folks like Zach Brown, um, you know, that they, they all, Elton Julian, they all have programs, and um, we'd love to uh, see as many cars uh, in the field as possible and give um, young talent um, a launch pad into the top levels, uh, similar to some of the experiences I had at Mazda in terms of giving young talent an opportunity. And we'd love to have drivers that have always dreamed of racing Daytona, may not have a, a, a career in motorsport as a driver as their number one priority, but I would love to see us um, add uh, some LMP2 entries uh, to shore up the ongoing commitment that Brent um, and the performance tech folks have shown and PR1 Matheson, um, that would be uh, fantastic. And so we'll uh, get down to Daytona next week for my first day in the office and talk to the team about uh, who's on the horizon and what the possibilities are and um, help them achieve their goals. You've seen a, a lot of what IMSA does from a different perspective than than Scott Appleton, yeah. who's your predecessor. Obviously, you realise you're going to be compared to him, which, frankly, would scare the living whatnots out of me, to be honest, John. You, you, uh, <laughs> good effort, mate. <laughs> Take a deep breath when you step in there. I'm sorry, I'm not sugarcoating this for you. Um, driver ratings and BOP are always uh, something that um, excises people, and they, they get... You know what I love about the IMSA fans is that they're all they're all very tribal and they love their brands and if they think that their Corvette or their Porsche or their BMW isn't getting a fair deal or their Cadillac or their Mazda isn't getting a fair deal, yeah. we, we really know that that's not the truth. But is it something that you think you can bring, or do you think you even need to bring a different look to having been on the other side of that as an entrant, either on driver ratings, BOP, or both? Well, it's it's a great question. Um, I have fortunately been in those OEM discussions and on the OEM feedback calls with all of my uh, OEM colleagues. And a credit, as I did during the season, um, it's a difficult job on the BOP front. Um, but a credit to the technical staff and the technical committee at IMSA for their massive efforts, the investment in data analysis and different tools and personnel to gather the proper amount of data and make data-based decisions on BOP. Um, the discussions in those OEM uh, meetings have always been about um, having manufacturers show their true potential at all times. And I think everybody's in agreement that we need to make sure that that continues. Um, we need to make sure that um, the data we have is um, is real. And if, if folks aren't showing their true potential, it's going to make it difficult to make proper BOP decisions. So I think we all want a process that's transparent. We want a process that's fair and ultimately then, um, you know, enjoy battles where you've got three, four, or five manufacturers fighting it out on the last lap. And we've had um, several situations like that in various classes a couple times this year, certainly uh, in DPI. And I think it's in everyone's interest to continue to produce uh, amazing content on the racetrack, which 
then allows the drivers and the manufacturers to showcase their talent and their their uh, products. If I might say so, John, um, no, there's never been any aspersions cast over how hard Mazda races, and in fact, I've read down through the years, Jeff Carter saying. Well, we know Mazda are trying their hearts out there, the guys who really go flat out, so I think you possibly would take a dim view of anybody who was doing anything else. I don't expect you to comment on that. <laughs> that, that, that is my observation there, not yours, but I, I think yeah. that's an, an interesting uh, thing to do. Um, in terms of, of driver ratings, um, there has to be somewhere when you have a championship that is divided up into pro, pro-am and, and am, and series that are divided up that way, there has to be somewhere of uh, of rating those drivers. There'll always be people on the margins. IMSA have got the ability to modify those with their driver committee. You happy with that kind? It's not just blindly following the the FIA or the ACO regs. Are you happy with that? You haven't had to deal with that so much in your previous life. Yeah, I think that would definitely be an area of I need to get down to the office and work with um, the staff on the technical side, the technical department. I know Paul Walter um, represents IMSA in in driver rating discussions uh, from the race control team. So, uh, you know, I I think clearly we want to give an opportunity for drivers, regardless of the years of experience they have, um, to springboard into a career or make their, their lifelong dreams come true in endurance sports car racing but um, I'm going to get with the staff next week and really understand where we stand um, with driver rating and our philosophies and continue to um, give people opportunities to compete um, at the level that's appropriate for them. Good. Uh, H.W. McSpooky and Michael Zusharm, I hope they were listening uh, to that because they both submitted questions on BOP and, uh, and driver race ratings. And, and I mentioned the ACO there. Zach Anderson asks about the ACO relationship. We know Scott Atherton's going to c- stay on and lend his uh, not inconsiderable uh, experience to the ongoing ACO-WAC relationship uh, side of things. It's no, uh, I don't think it's uh, any secret, John, that you're a big fan of Le Mans. Anybody uh, who uh, has lived and breathed Mazda for the amount of time that you do can't possibly be anything else as the first Japanese manufacturer and until recently the only manufacturer from Japan who had won the world's greatest motor race. Um, the ACO relationship is still important to Wimsa and we shouldn't underestimate that. And I, I presume you don't see that changing anytime soon? Yeah, from from everything that, that Scott and Ed and Jim have shared and the fact that uh, they were all again in June, um, you know, is a, is a statement of an ongoing and long-term partnership that's uh, important and certainly back even to the, the 80s and, and even 70s and IMSA when, when the U.S. teams were competing and vice versa when teams that were competing on a world-wide basis were coming to events like Daytona and Sebring. Um, I think uh, uh, Scott and I had a discussion this morning about getting into the office and having him be able to update me on uh, the latest discussions and where things stand. But I think um, I know from a fan perspective, uh, it would be amazing to have a uh, set of global regulations someday that would allow uh, manufacturers from all over the world to come together and put on just the uh, incredible 
uh, incredible shows that uh, we all have come to uh, know in IMSA and at Le Mans over the years. So um, let's uh, let's keep our fingers crossed that um, we can all come to an agreement at some point down the road. Don't know when that'll be, but I think uh, everyone in our hearts uh, is keen to uh, to see that become reality. I should say you mentioned something there that we should bring out. I've got a couple of little quickies for you at the end. Um, but uh, you started as a fan. You've remained a fan. And it's good to know that, like Scott, a lot of people didn't realise how enthusiastic and what a fan Scott Atherton really was. And that informed some of his thinking about the stuff that happened for the fans, whether at the track or further afield. There'll be no change there with you, John. I know that because there's nobody who, whose uh, heart pumps gasoline more than... Than, than you do. You're one of us, so good luck to you on that. Ken Marth says, now, this doesn't necessarily have to be a negative comment, but I think it's an interesting one. He, he submitted this um, on Twitter using ask, hashtag AskDoonan. Um, what don't you want to see in IMSA? That's a fantastic question. <laughs> it's, it's, um, a, it's a killer, isn't certainly. it? It really is. No, it, it is a killer. Um, what, I, what I don't want is budgets escalate that put a uh, um, a team um, out of business or unable to compete. Mm. I don't think any of us want to see budgets skyrocket. Um, I certainly don't want to see um, entries drop. I, uh, you know, I don't want to see uh, less fans attend. Uh, th- those are obvious ones, but I, I would say that the biggest thing for me, would I, I would never want to see budgets uh, get to an unobtainium level um, because that wouldn't be good for uh, for anyone. I'm going to finish up with this one. And this, my tongue is in my cheek here, John. So just take a deep breath before you answer this one. This comes from Magnus, Magnus Berglund, who submitted this on the Radio Show Limited Listeners Collective on, on Facebook. He says, is there any truth in the rumour that DPO 2.0 will have rotary engines mandated? I love that question. Um, I, I think our earplug budget um, would would go through the roof. I talked about controlling budgets. I think we would we would blow the earplug uh, and ear protection budget of all fans um, out of the water if we allowed that. But there's nothing like the sound of the rotary. Um, we obviously were extremely proud of it when I was at Mazda. And now uh, it would be amazing if that engine came back someday um, to endurance sports car racing. Uh, certainly keeps everybody awake at night in those uh, races like Daytona, Sebring, and Petit Le Mans. John, can't thank you enough for your time. I know how busy you've been. Uh, we'll not wish you the best of luck because you don't need luck when you've got the enthusiasm, the passion, uh, and the attention to detail that you've shown down through the years uh, in your time at Mazda. I know how hard it's going to be to to hang up your Mazda hat and your ha- Mazda shirt uh, and put on the IMSA one, but I know you're doing it for the right reasons as well, sir, and we wish you all the best, if I might say that, and we'll speak to you again soon. Cheers, mate. Thank you so much, John. Well, Shay Adam is still with us. Shay, uh, Doonan, thank you. Is there, is there a lot of... Um, a lot of change you're going to see, or is this very much a consistent appointment from IMSA to replace Scott Anderson? It feels very consistent, Tim. And and I have to say, as somebody on the inside, I was hearing the rumours of potential 
potential replacement, not replacements, potential people to step into Scott Atherton's very large shoes because he has been president of IMSA for such a long time that he really has laid down a precedent, if you will, of how this should go. The rumors were swirling that it was going to be someone in the paddock, somebody that we all knew, somebody that we all liked. That was sort of what we had been warned of. Then when I got to Road Atlanta and heard the name John Doonan as a potential candidate, just, you know, sort of a dream situation, it was one of those things that we thought, nah, that that can't happen. That's too good to be true. There's no one in IMSA who loves IMSA more than John Doonan. I mean, he's been coming to the track since he was six weeks old. He told us that back at Road America when he was crying uh, uncontrollably after the Mazda's won. He loves this more than anyone else. And you know that he's only going to do things to try and better the sport and, and better sports car racing. So in terms of somebody to keep things fluid, keep things moving in the right direction, the perfect choice is John Doonan. It's a massive loss of Mazda, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah. That was the first thing. When, when it was announced, the reaction was, this is great for us. This is fantastic for IMSA. And then the second reaction was, how in the world are Mazda going to replace him? Because there is nobody who loves Mazda as much as John Noonan does. And then you start to wonder what changes we're going to see within that program when we get to the roar in 2020. Is their driver lineup still going to be the same? I mean, they've got people who have climbed the Mazda ladder driving two of the four seats in that car for the full season. Is that still going to be there when it's not John fighting for them at the end of the day? I mean, it's going to be a very different Mazda Team Yost next year, that's for sure. Uh, we shall see what happens. And uh, obviously he starts, uh, or his first race meeting uh, will be the Michelin Encore, which you can hear on IMS Radio next month. Let's move on to some other US news and uh, something that's very or initially sounded very exciting to me. But uh, the more I look into it, the uh, less excited I'm able to be, unfortunately. Uh, And that is uh, Circuit Hawaii. Yeah, um, that would be... A one and a half mile road course uh, (laughs) with a drag strip and a dirt track um, in Hawaii. Uh, unfortunately, it's only going to be uh, FIA Grade 3 licensed, so it's not going to host anything that's big enough uh, to attract me or to attract anyone mm-hmm. to pay me to go there. Is is it only a Grade 3, Tim, because they can't guarantee that a volcano won't erupt and just decimate the track while everyone's there? Do you not like Hawaii? No, 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 I love Hawaii. I wanted to be a volcanologist when I was little. I'm, I'm more fascinated by volcanoes almost than race cars. <laughs> I went on holiday once and met a woman who had visited 37 volcanoes. Oh, that's so cool. So She, what, she was what a dentist. Is... She, so dentists obviously earn so much money that they can afford to go traveling a lot. <laughs> Which island is this racetrack supposed to be on, the big uh, island? Oahu. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Near the airport. Well, it'd be... Easy to get to if you just fly into Honolulu. Uh, it's been uh, designed by a UK company called Driven International in conjunction with uh, Kaufman Engineers and HHF Planners with the Yoshi Development Corporation of New York uh, doing the architecture. Hmm. And it's not, it wouldn't be the first time that Oahu has a racetrack. They it wouldn't had be, one. No. 
they had one that shut down in 14, was it? It was a couple of years ago now. Uh, a bit longer than that, I think. Yeah. Um, but yes, not not the first racetrack in Hawaii. Hmm. Uh, NASCAR, Talladega. Dega. Dega prevailed once again. Unfortunately, we did not get to see the laps of Nick Tandy in the Porsche uh, 911, number 911. Um, but we did get to see it on social media. And if you have some free time today, go look up the onboard video that Nick Tandy posted, where he kept the actual speed of the car in the live telemetry in kilometers an hour, which I think is brilliant because, you know, NASCAR won't translate those numbers. They won't know how fast he was actually going above his 100-mile-an-hour limit. So people on Twitter who keep posting what the number was, shh, stop that. We don't want to get him in trouble. But the the NASCAR race did go off. There was a big one and another big one. And um, Brendan Gaughan, I think it was, actually flipped upside down, did a perfect a 360 and then landed back on his wheels. But what it means is we are one race closer to the next round of the chase cutoff, which takes place this weekend in Kansas. So the four drivers in trouble right now, kind of shocking because three of them drive for team Hendricks, Alex mm. Bowman, Chase Elliott, and William Byron are all on the outside looking in as well as Clint Boyer. Byron pretty much needs to win and get in. Same thing for Chase Bowman could potentially get there, but 56 points behind the cutoff means that he's got a ways to go. Ryan Blaney, who was in trouble before Talladega, managed to win the race, so he guarantees himself a place in that top eight moving forward to the next round of the playoffs. And the only other driver who's really safe is Kyle Larson because he's the only one who's won a race. But Denny Hamlin, Martin Truex Jr., Kyle Busch, and Kevin Harvick all look pretty good. Keselowski is 36 points off the lead, and so is Joey Logano, 38 points. So the two of them really, the Penske drivers actually, they would really be a lot more comfortable if they got a win to guarantee their spots. Uh, Moving away from North America, uh, and Porsche has opened its seventh Porsche Experience Center, this time in Germany at uh, Hockenheim as part of the Sports Car Together Day Festival. Uh, It's a 170,000 square meter facility, uh, including a handling course, driving dynamics areas, and an off-road track. Uh, Last weekend when it opened, uh, 70,000 people turned up to take a look. Holy cow! 9,000 of them arrived in their own Porsches. (laughs) That is fantastic. 70,000 people for a grand opening. Yeah. Uh, Detlef von Platten, uh, the uh, sales and marketing uh, executive at Porsche, said, uh, Porsche stands for emotions, passions, and genuine experiences. The Porsche Experience Center Hockenheim Ring is intended as a point of contact for customers and enthusiasts from all around Europe where they can experience what the Porsche feeling represents and can meet the Porsche community. Uh, it's only 100 kilometers from Stuttgart, the home of Porsche, of course. Yeah, it's like an hour and 10 minutes away. Uh, the handling course is 2.8 kilometers, uh, featuring challenging corners and long straights. Uh, customers can test the off-road capabilities of the Cayenne and Macan SUVs on the off-road course, which is 5,200 square meters uh, and features 17 different modules. Hmm. 
I regularly test the Cayenne's off-road capability in Canada, and it hasn't let me down yet. <laughs> uh, there's also a shop, cafe, restaurant, uh, and 800 square meters of exhibition space for cars. Wow. And uh, if you want to go in your electric uh, Porsche, such as the Taycan, uh, then there is a high-power charging uh, for you to uh, fast-charge your battery. Hmm. So there's there's one in Lamont, there's one in L.A. and Atlanta. Silverstone. Um, Silverstone. Is this the first one to be open in Germany? There must be one in Germany already, surely. Porsche wouldn't yeah, have not put one in Germany. No, you, you'd have thunk that they would put one in Stuttgart, but I don't remember there being one there. I just remember uh, Weishaupt being there from last year, which in itself. There, there's one in Shanghai. Um, hmm. Interesting. Uh, if anyone knows where the other two are... Then, yeah, uh, tweet us. <laughs> let's know. There must be one in South Africa somewhere. Huh. Uh, Formula E has been testing ahead of the uh, new season. Uh, day two of testing at Valencia is finished today. And Virgin remain on top. Uh, Robin Freintz... Uh, retained his top spot mm. after setting an unbeaten lap of 1 minute 15.377 seconds. Uh, yesterday, Sam Bird was fastest. Uh, so uh, the British team have dominated testing so far, uh, despite being one of only two teams that isn't backed by a manufacturer. Ooh, that's embarrassing. Uh, yesterday... Um, Nick DeFries had a uh, crash. Um, today he had more technical issues, uh, so failed to set a time at all in the morning. Um, let's take a look at. Oh, we don't have the. Full, oh, yes, we do have the full times. Uh, so, uh, Robin Freints was uh, fastest, a tenth of a second ahead of Maxi Gunter. Uh, Alex Sims was third, Ollie Rowland fourth, uh, then Muller, De Costa, Hartley, Collado, Evans, Degrassi, Mortara, and Verne making up the top 12. Hmm. Did you see that yesterday Neil Yanni had a slight off into the wall, as he described it, which required a complete chassis change for the yes. new Porsche? I wonder how slight that actually was. <laughs> Substantial, I would say. Uh, yeah. Bit of Formula Two news as well. Arden have announced they're going to withdraw from Formula Two after the end of this season. They'll be replaced by HWA Race Lab, which is uh, a Mercedes affiliated team uh, that uh, competes in Formula E, Formula Three, and DTM. Uh, Arden's been a stalwart of Formula Two since before it was Formula Two. It raced in GP2 before that and in Formula 3000 from the uh, year 1997 when it uh, had one Christian Horner among its drivers. Uh, the team <laughs> run by his brother, Gary. Wow. And some tyre news. Goodyear has announced its return to British motorsport. It will become the sole tyre supplier to the British Touring Car Championship uh, from next season hmm. uh, using the Eagle F1 Superstort uh, range it follows uh, this year's uh, move uh, into the FIA World Endurance Championship 
Uh, Motorsport director Ben Crawley said the recent launch of Goodyear's Eagle F1 Supersport range and relaunch into motorsport shows how the brand is applying itself to a broader range of initiatives within the ultra-high-performance automotive sector. Uh, the decision to become the sole tyre supplier forms part of a broader strategic marketing plan for the company. The BTC is one of the best-loved, most famous motor racing championships in the world, said Ben Crawley. <laughs> so, uh, uh, they replaced uh, Dunlop, which, of course, is the same company, uh, but yeah. with a different brand. Yeah, well, good for them. Coming back catch into another up with one. all things from Down Under. Richard Krill is with us. Uh, hello, Krill. See, are you awake and alert? Yeah, I am. I've, I've got the Bathurst hangover, though. You, you know, the, the Bathurst hangover, and you've had it. Uh, and it's, it's nothing the hangover. to do with alcohol, is it? No, no, not even slight. I didn't touch a drop on Sunday night, but it's 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 the hangover you get when you come out of a race meeting at that place going, hmm, interesting. That, that, that was a thing that happened. I don't quite know what it was pretty certain i like it like it a lot um and your pulse your pulse rate four days afterwards still at 125 because uh it was extraordinary so yeah um otherwise all good uh the uh super cheap autos 1000 highlight of the endurance series highlight of the virgin australia supercars for most people you and i talked about it a couple of weeks ago uh and i'll i'll reflect on that in a moment or two but before the race, something very special in qualifying. And you were up on the mountain to watch qualifying. Uh, yeah. It's what you do. And I'm very envious uh, of that. And it was another absolute cracker. Yeah, I, I'm fortunate in that I, it's the one session of the year where I, I don't work. And because I don't call the supercars as much as I'd love to, I, with a couple of colleagues, go and sit on the hill at the chase at the bottom of Conrad Strait on driver's left up on that massive embankment there. Uh, and just soak up the atmosphere. And it was a very, very cold Saturday evening going into the top 10 shootout. And the the other thing about it was we didn't have much of a form guide because <laughs> qualifying, which is on Friday afternoon, was wet. And it was the only wet session of the weekend. So there were a, a group of cars in the shootout that probably wouldn't have been there had qualifying been dry. So it just threw that extra variable in. And like top 10 shootouts at that place do, it built and built and built over the duration until we got to the very end. And Scott McLaughlin came out and just did what Scott McLaughlin does, which is qualify on pole by an outrageous margin anywhere he goes. Um, it was a great lap. He, he reset the benchmark for the fastest ever supercar lap twice over the course of the weekend. He did it once in practice early um, and then went quicker again in the shootout. So the, the level of commitment required to do that is remarkable and it, it's fine doing it in a practice session because you can build up to it you've got laps you've got tire temperature but shootout is one lap run and done it was it was 10 degrees ambient if it was lucky the track would have been 15 or 16 degrees c freezing cold somehow he did it and it's since come to light and you won't believe this that when he checked his dash coming out of forest elbow at the top of conrod Strait. He was on for a 2.029 in a supercar at that joint, which is just extraordinary. But Scott being the smart, intelligent young race car driver he is, he decided that he could probably afford to, if not go easy, because he was still as fast as I've ever seen a supercar through the chase uh, before, if not go easy, he could afford to be slightly less aggressive through the final sector of the lap so he didn't spray it. 
Um, and he ended up doing a 2034, which in a supercar is completely and utterly ridiculous. It's just uncharted territory. So, And he was four tenths faster than anybody else, which is just par for the course this year. So a great life, a great experience, uh, amazing atmosphere up on the hill. And um, it, it just set the tone for what was a pretty wild old Sunday at that place. Now, the race itself, which was pretty much a cracker all the way through, you're, mm. you're usual in terms of the, the Bathurst 1000, but not without controversy. Um, before we get to that, Scott McLaughlin, Alessandra Prema win for Shell V-Power Racing Team in the Mustang uh, GT by uh, a very small margin <laughs> indeed at the end ahead of Shane Van Gisbergen and Garth Tander for Red Bull Holden. The super team in second then. The other team that we mentioned when we were talking together a couple of weeks mm. ago that were in with a chance it couldn't be counted out are the team that won. Your worry was that Alexander Premat might not be able to be... Perhaps wasn't the best of the second drivers, to, that, to be fair. That was about what you said. He clearly did a pretty good job to start with. Yeah, look, he did a super job. It was the concern of many that that in that entire enterprise, and, and it feels bad to say it because he's had such a great career. Um, he won Macau in Formula 3, was terrific in open wheels, good in sports cars, ticked all the boxes, right? Um, and, and it feels strange to do it, but he doesn't race often. He lives in Las Vegas. He's out of the scene. He does a lot of driving out there at the speedway, but but doesn't compete, doesn't race, and more to the point, doesn't race a supercar and they're very very unique animals whereas a lot of the other guys and girls in the field are in these cars quite regularly so it was always it was always the big question mark but he did a terrific job really really impressive the only blot on his copybook was a moment into the chase uh, towards the end of his first double stint so he jumped in mclaughlin did the first 16 laps premat jumped in and did a double so it was, I think his stint ended up being about 44 laps instead of 48 because they pulled him in early. Um, he was in a, a really amazing four-car battle for the lead with uh, Red Bull Cars and the two Tickford Falcons who are in the game as well. We'll talk about them in a minute as well. But um, he just grabbed the brake going into the chase up the hill there in braking zone and it actually torched the right front quite badly and yeah. ultimately took it down to the belt on the tyre. Um, so they, they shortcut his first stint in the race by a couple of laps. So his second stint later on against some of the main drivers was a bit longer. But he was absolutely up to the job, set a brilliant pace, car was straight, no dramas, um, brilliant pit stops and yeah, massive, massive role in contributing to, to that team winning that race as it always is in, in two-driver endurance races. So no massive tick. There were, there were ultimately no dramas with Alex Premat and he's – the first um, international, and I say that by non-Aussie, non-Kiwi, yeah. to win the great race since Ricard Rydell did it in a Volvo in 1998. So, wow. uh, yeah, it's a terrific achievement. Uh, James Courtney, Jack it's Perkins made up the, the podium in the Mobile One Holden Commodore, mm. the 22 car. All the talk, because the result as we sit here right now is provisional. Um, and there will be a hearing when they head off to the Gold Coast as they are doing... Um, this week and uh, this is all about the incident that happened with 27 to go car in the kitty litter at the final corner and a safety car comes out now at that at that point uh, McLaughlin and Premat are leading 
Uh, and significantly, Fabian Coulthard, who's in the team car, the, the Shell Vipar team car, the 12 car, uh, is next in line. He's third, actually, in line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is what happened. Let's have a listen to this. You're going to hear some team radio. The two voices are the engineers of the 12 car, which is the... Uh, the car we're talking about, the Shell car, and the 97, which of course is Shiv van Gisbergen. You'll hear Gizzy as well on, on that. Uh, and this is, as I say, 27 laps to go. And the first bit of radio that you're going to hear is the team to Shiv van Gisbergen, and then it flips flat, flip-flops back and forth between the two cars and the two teams. So first of all, 97, and then the 12. Hey, mate, there's going to be another safety car soon. What do I do? I don't know where the incident is. Slow down, slow down, just extreme caution. I think it's on a mountain somewhere. Slow down, extreme caution. Yeah, Fabian should get a penalty for that. Going stupidly close. Extreme caution. They still have not told us where the safety car is. Race control have not told us. Get your box this club, box this club, staying in the car. Yeah, okay, Fabian needs a penalty as well. This is shocking. So that gives a bit of the picture, but not all of it, because we're on radio. What happened mm. was that effectively, from what was a second or a couple of seconds, by the time McLaughlin, uh, McLaughlin's car is in the pit lane, there's almost half the length of the Conrad Strait between them and the rest of the field, which is, and I use this word, and I'm not meaning judgmentally, being held up behind mm-hmm. the 12 car because the 12 car is driving slowly. Interesting set of radio though, if all of that is true, what are they going to look at and what are the possible sanctions uh, and uh, penalties that can be applied and and I suppose we've got to ask what rules if any were broken? So this this is an unbelievably complex issue to unpick, and and we should probably start by saying the whole reason this unfolded was due to one the the rule book which doesn't close the pit lane when there's a safety car. So a safety car becomes either a catch up car to the pack, or it becomes a race to the pit lane car, which in that case it was. So the car that was out was the the wildcard entry of Alex Rossi and James Hinchcliffe. It backed itself into the gravel at the final corner. When it was called, the cars were at the top of the mountain. And the call that went to – so the two cars in front were Triple Eight. Jamie Winkup was behind the wheel and Scott McLaughlin, who was running second at the time in car 17. And the call was to them, safety car, push, push, push. So those two cars were told to go flat out because they needed to get back to pit lane to build a margin because everyone was worried outside of triple eight. Everyone was worried about the 97 that you heard from in that team radio because they were on a slightly alternate strategy and they were 10 seconds to the better on fuel than anybody else. So well, basically they were going to stay out, stay out. Yeah. 
Exactly, because they were going to get track position, and, and this was a track position motor race. You needed to be in front. Um, and and so the, the idea was, or the, what, what actually happened was, is that with car 12 backing the field up and going slowly, and he was told, we don't know where the incident is, go slowly, that gave McLaughlin, and indirectly it benefited Triple Eight as well because it gave it gave that team and the Holden that was in front with Wink up behind the wheel a massive free kick as well. Um, that gave them the opportunity to get into pit lane, get serviced and get out without losing track position. And the other benefit is without their teammates double stacking. So parking up behind them, there's only one pit boom perk to two cars, parking up behind the block in the pit lane and losing an enormous amount of track position under a safety car. Mm. So that that's the background. So the outside, the, the afterwards of this is that the, the stewards have elected to pursue an investigation into whether this is a breach of team order regulations in the championship. And team orders are expressly forbidden. Right. Um, and there are some people saying that this is uh, a similar scenario to the Renault crash gate at Singapore all those years ago. It, it's not. It's not anywhere near that dramatic or that influencing on the race. In the end, what cost Triple Eight the motor race was that they elected on fuel in a fuel race at the end, they elected to go hard, make a pit stop while Car Seventeen elected to conserve fuel and hope that they made it home. And ultimately, that that track position that I talked about before was what gave Seventeen the victory because they stayed out, they didn't yes. pit, and that was key. So ultimately, it didn't cost later, Triple Eight the race. That was after that incident that, that, that you talked about. That because, was a separate one hundred percent. Yeah. 100%. yeah. Because the Triple Eight would have been in first and out first in that incident that we're talking about with with twenty seven to go. Yeah, correct. So, yeah, exactly right. So they they were still in really good shape. The the Triple Eight side of the Red Bull Holden Racing Team garage. What it did do was completely and utterly ruin the ninety seven. Even though they were in again with the shot later on. So the the way that place works, as you all well know, is that. You, you get this rush of safety cars at the end when everyone gets their elbows out and gets feisty and goes, oh, hang on, we've got to win Bathurst. We've been cruising around for five hours. All of a sudden, it gets serious. So um, they they worked their way back in. So the race-changing effects of it were significant, but I don't think they completely influenced the end result. Mm. Certainly influenced where the race was at that point. Mm. Um, and that's what the stewards are looking at. The stewards are concerned that it was a a deliberate attempt from that team to manipulate the motor race to the benefit of one of their two team cars. Um, and that's what the stewards are going to inquire on. So Krilzy, can we, I we ask should a question. Mention... Is, is, there, yep. is there a regulation about, um, you know, uh, double stack? We, we've seen this before. It's, it's not always as important at Bathurst, funny enough, on, on some of the shorter races. It really is. But, We've seen this happen before where people have trundled into the pit lane a little bit slower uh, and there have been mm. gaps in the safety car train. Now, this was an extreme uh, an extreme example of that. But from that radio now, and you can say, mm. well, they would do this, wouldn't they? The engineer mm-hmm. saying, debris, debris, debris. I don't know where the safety car is. Race control hasn't yep. told us where the safety car is. We don't know... Yep. Um, it, it, we think it might be up on the mountain. We don't know. Slow yeah. down, slow down, slow down, and double and double stack. And yeah. you know, okay, they're covering themselves there, but 
but it's going to be awfully difficult. Surely they can't take the win away from, from McLaughlin and Premart. No, no. And the other thing we should say is that Car 12 was penalised in race for that incident. So he was yes, penalised for point. breach of safety car regulations and he was given a drive-through penalty for, for not maintaining uh, a maximum of five car lengths between the car in front. Right. So that, that's the okay. rule. Um, so he's being pinged car for team. that then? He was pinged so for that? He was, he was pinged for the safety car breach. But what, what the stewards are looking at is a broader breach of the regulations regarding the team orders rule. And there is a firm no team orders rule. And that's what they're looking at. That's right. what they're going to dive deeper into when they get up to the Gold Coast and have the investigation next week. Do you know, my, my personal opinion is if this was the last pit stop and it actually yes. changed the outcome of the race significantly... Um, because in, in my analysis of the race, it was a strategy call that cost Triple Eight. It wasn't this. So they elected to pit, 17 didn't, and that ultimately decided the running order at the end of the motor race. Um, had this played out differently, would Shane Van Gisbergen have got more track position? Yes, he probably would have. Would he have won the race? You have absolutely no idea. And and that is where Too many other I think... variables between that and the it, end of the race. It, correct, exactly right. There were still 20, you heard 27 odd laps to go, plenty of racing. Um, I, I suspect they'll get a sanction. I reckon they'll get a big whack of team points and um, in the team's championship, which is vitally important because it dictates your pit order mm-hmm. year in, year out, much like it does in Formula One. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they'll get that. I think they'll get a very, very large fine, which will look excellent from the governing body. So we've, we've dispensed justice. I'm not convinced that McLaughlin will lose his race win because in the end, Car 17 had absolutely nothing to do with it. Nope. Absolutely nothing at all. His side of the garage did exactly what they needed to do. Well, if and you're talking about the, taking an advantage, if you're seeing that the 17 car was unfairly advantaged by what went on, so was the Triple Eight. Yeah, well, exa- exactly right. So you're not going to penalise them. No. Um because they're the, they're the arch rivals. So yes, exactly, exactly. So I, that that's my take on it. Now I, I could be completely and utterly wrong, but yeah. I'm I'm pretty pretty confident that they'll they'll keep that win. I I can't see them stripping them of, of the win. Uh, ultimately, Kilthar, uh, uh, Fabian Kilthard, Tony Dalberto finished uh, in sixth, fifth for David Reynolds and Luke Yildon. That was a decent run uh, for the Penrite Racing Car. Jamie Wincup, Craig Lounge, Super Team, just off. The podium in fourth, they'll be, I think, a little bit disappointed with that. that one of the few cars that finished where they started in terms of grid con- conditions. James Courtney, mm. Jack Perkins, up 18 positions uh, with a bullet uh, to three. Sounds like <laughs> my old countdown days on hospital radio. Uh, Gizzy and Garth Tander second, and um, Scotty McLaughlin and Alexander Premat winning that. Um, other other drivers and teams or uh, that, that caught your eye there, Krilsey, before I ask you one more thing about uh, Aussie Motorsport at the moment? Uh, yeah, look, there, there were so many impressive performances over the weekend. And at the same time, there were there were so many really disappointing ones that that really just didn't deliver. I, I think the thing for mine, and, and I in, in the hubbub afterwards, so on Sunday night, we were all sitting there just going, my God, how good Scott McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. And since then, it's all been about this this team orders drama, and and that frustrates me a little bit because I I think Scott McLaughlin drove the lap of his life at the end of that race, and there was there was a safety car with three laps to go. Yep. Andre Heimgartner crashed the Nissan. He got absolutely dudded on strategy. The team 
the team stuffed him around. He was on track for P6, we reckon, at the end, but they pitted him when they didn't need to, and he was driving the car very hard to try and catch up and ended up in the in the wall at the elbow top of Conrod um, with three laps to go. So they dragged that car out of the way. It was an awesome job by the race officials to get the race restarted so it could finish under green. I love and that. The, the, yeah, and the social media brigade have popped up going, oh, it's all artificial and manufactured. But no, we want, we want to see it under green. It's Bathurst. Like, mm-hmm. it deserves a flying finish. But you don't um, think the same people will be shouting and saying, oh, they finished the race under yellow. That's, yeah, that's absolutely, exactly. you know, it's contrived. Yeah, yeah. So we got a racing finish. The, the two laps under safety car are the slowest two laps of safety car I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> and the, I don't, you could get out and walk faster, and I don't walk. Um, it was going so slowly to try and to try and give these poor recovery guys enough time to drag this absolutely ruin this and ultimate out of the way behind a fence, which they did. So Scotty restarted with a lap to go in a cooling racetrack with rock hard cold tires and somehow fended off Shane Van Gisberg and, and it was an unbelievably good final lap. And I, I rank that last lap better than his qualifying effort wow. significantly because the, the pressure is so much different. If you spray the top 10 shit out, you start 10, doesn't really matter in the end. The race has only been won from pole twice since 1980. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not a massive drama. But if you spray it leading on the last lap of the biggest race in Australia, uh, that's um, that's a bad thing. So under that amount of pressure, I reckon the Scott McLaughlin of a couple of years ago wouldn't have done it, but this yeah. year he did. And it was just one of the great, great Bathurst drives. Uh, and before we let you go and get on with your day, um, Cams is no more. Yes. Yeah, it's a lot almost of people have been taking... saying that for a long time that they've been wanting yeah. that, but it's not exactly <laughs> the result that those those people wanted. No, it's not. No, and we could go all kinds of places on this, but no, they're copying a, they're copying a rebrand. So uh, the marketeers get their way and they can... Uh, They've got a Swiss new logo, Motorsport Australia, and um, I reckon they're just following in the footsteps of what happened over there, aren't yes. they? Because the, the MSA went to Motorsport UK, what, 12 months ago, if yeah, not a little, a bit, little more, bit more? A little bit more than yeah. that, which, yeah. which makes me laugh every time because Motorsport UK was a, pro, a TV, in fact, still is, it still runs a TV program that I used to work on on ITV with all the support categories from the British Touring Car Championship, and it's been running for probably more than a decade now, and I, and I can't believe that our lot didn't do any market research to find out, oh, Motorsport UK, yeah, that's that program that's on on a you know, Thursday night at 11 o'clock at night when we come back in from the pub where the Porsches are on it. It's... Yeah. <laughs> So basically, uh, it's a change of name, but it won't change anything no, in terms of how the the, the, the organisation no, is run or organised. No, it's the same thing. Look, I, I get why they're doing it, because every other governing body in Australia, you know, it's Basketball Australia or yes. Volleyball Australia or, you know, and, and I think it, part of it's down to the, the Australian government and the way they allocate their funding and, and just to make it clearer. But if you walk up to someone on the street who doesn't know about car racing, you go, oh, I was dealing with cams, they'll go, huh? But if you go, oh, I was dealing with Motorsport Australia, they'll go, oh, well, that's that clearly a, something influential no, in Motorsport. So, not a silly idea. No, not at all, mate. Listen, we'll let you go. Uh, you're off to the Gold Coast for the 27th to the uh, 25th to the 27th? Yeah, yeah. An amazing event, um, which this year is not the end of the Enduro Cup no. because it's all changed around. So uh, 
It takes on a slightly different context. We've got the final round of Carrera Cup of Australia up there as well and two points between their two top drivers in that championship. So uh, it's always an amazing weekend. You've you've watched and loved it on television, I know. Mm, I've driven around uh, the circuit. One of, yeah, <laughs> an amazing joint. Yeah, one of my favourite trips of the year, so I can't wait. Cheers, Krelzy. Always a pleasure, mate. Thanks, mate. Cheers. And that's all we've got time for. Many thanks to Richard Crail, to Shay Adam, to Nick Damon, and to our guest John Doonan, the new president of IMSA, and to Seb Prio, a race winner on his debut at uh, Road Atlanta at the weekend. We'll be back with more Midweek Motorsports next Wednesday at 8pm, where our special guest will be Nick Tandy. But for now, for all of us, good night. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.